2 Corinthians chapter 11, I've entitled this this morning, The Bride of Christ. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul, let's go a little bit back with our history of 2 Corinthians. Paul is continuing his defense of his authority as an apostle. And um, you remember that he had to write this letter to the church because um, there was sexual immorality going on. Everybody knew about it. And um, so they wrote and told Paul about it, and he writes back a letter, and he says, even though I'm not there, this is what I want you to do. Take the guy and kick him out. Um, It goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he was actually committing adultery, and the whole church knew about it, and Paul says, don't you realize that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So this was being allowed to take place. Paul had to address the issue, so he writes this very firm letter, and it was the most loving thing that Paul could do because the guy actually thought because he was going to church, he was going to heaven, and he wasn't. So he had to address it. The good news is the majority of the people received it. And uh, when we get to Second Corinthians, we find out the guy actually repents and gets saved. And now Paul is telling him, I want you to make sure you love on that guy and don't treat him like a second-class Christian. Remember, you're a sinner too. And, and so, but having said all of that, remember that Corinth was a very wealthy city of 700,000 people, two-thirds of which were slaves, which probably meant they had a poor work ethic and weren't used to having people tell them what to do. Is everybody with me so far? So there was a small hand group of people that Paul is continually writing in 2 Corinthians and he has to explain to them his, his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have the authority to tell you what to do and that's what we read here um, as he talks about his um, authority. And it's been pretty straightforward pretty hard-hitting, dealing with this minority uh, group that was there. Um, If you go back to chapter 10, this is what their attitude was. Go back to chapter 10, and we'll look at 7 through 11. Um, Do not look at things according to the outward appearance. If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in manner that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. 
For even if I should boast somewhat about our authority, and here it is, he was an apostle. The Lord had given him this authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction. I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. And this was their attitude. For his letters, they say, well, they're weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Uh, Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letter, when we are absent, such we will also be in deed when we are present. So here he... They're saying that um, he just doesn't look right. He doesn't look like an apostle. They say that Paul was a a short-looking guy. And um, if you look at chapter 11, verse 6, he doesn't only look right, but he doesn't speak right. It says his speech was contemptible. And then in verse 6 of chapter 11, it says, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. So they didn't like the way he looked. (laughs) They didn't like the way he um, talked. And as a result, they had this attitude. And he's been addressing it from a lot of different perspectives. But as we get to chapter 11, we find Paul sort of comes at it from a little different angle for sharing his authority and his concern for them, instead of being straightforward and forceful, saying, look, I'm an apostle, I have the authority to be doing what I'm doing, he sort of twists it here, and he comes at it from an angle of, you're not just saved sinners, but someday you're going to be the bride of Christ. And if you look at verse two, Um, one and two, he says, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you. So the betrothal is the idea we probably best remember when you're betrothed, you're not quite yet married. And the Bible study is about two things, the bride of Christ and the marriage supper of the, the lamb. But before we can get married, um, the betrothal stage, what Paul is talking about here, New Testament marriages were often begun when the couple was very young, sometimes even prior to birth, by the groom's father. He would sign a legal enactment before the proper judge, um, pledging his son to a chosen girl. The father would then offer the proper dowry payment, thus, even though the bride had never seen the groom, she was nevertheless betrothed or espoused to him. A New Testament example of this first step was that of Mary and Joseph. And I'm quoting now from Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused or betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Both Mary and Joseph had come from Bethlehem and had been perhaps been betrothed or promised to each other 
since childhood. But now Mary was found to be with child before the marriage could be consummated. And of course, Joseph could arrive at only one conclusion, that she'd been unfaithful and untrue. But then the angel of the Lord explains to Joseph the glory of the virgin birth. Uh, Thus, the betrothal stage consists of two steps. Number one, the selection of a bride. Number two, the payment of the dowry. Uh, With this in mind, we can set the stage that the marriage of the lamb is still in the betrothal stage. Now, you're the bride of Christ. Can I get an amen for that? But we're not married yet. We are in the betrothal stage. So what I'd like to do is take time and sort of blend the Old Testament with the new, and I want to give you an Old Testament picture of betrothal. So if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 24. We went through this a couple months ago, but we're going to go through it again this morning. And it's a picture. And part of the picture is that of betrothal. We have here in chapter 24, uh, the main characters are going to be Abraham, um, his servant, who goes unnamed here, but I'll give you his name in a little bit, Isaac and Rebekah. And they're all going to be types of the picture that we're going to be painting this morning. So let's pick it up in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, uh, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to his oldest servant, I want to point out here you don't know what his name is. And because he's going to be a type of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I'm going to send you a helper, a comforter, and he's going to be with you. And that the purpose of the Holy Spirit, as you know, is to convict the world of sin, but also to draw out a bride for Jesus Christ. So before we go any farther, um, I want to make this connection. There's a reason that he goes unnamed here, but we can find out who he is anyway. All you have to do is go back to chapter 15 of Genesis, and this is before Isaac had come along, and we read in chapter 15, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield and exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. If I die, my head servant is going to get everything. But here we're told his name. Now his name is significant, because if you do a word search on it, it means helper, or one who comes alongside and helps. That's exactly what the Holy Jesus told the disciples. I'm going to give you a helper, and he's going to come alongside of you. And he will not speak of himself, we read in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit doesn't draw its attention towards itself, but only points to Jesus. Another good place for an amen. So the very fact that he goes unnamed here, I think, is a very important part of the picture. All right. So Abraham said to Eliezer, his oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God 
of earth that you will not take a wife from the sons of the daughter of the Canaanites where we dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. And a servant said to him, well, perhaps a woman will not want to follow me to the land. Must I take uh, your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants I give you this land. And he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath, only do not take my son back there. So we have a picture of the father sending Eliezer, uh, a type of the Holy Spirit, going into a far land with the purpose of finding a bride for Isaac. And um, so he swore, I'm just gonna uh, go and just fill in between the spaces here without reading the whole chapter. Um, Eliezer swears, I'll do it. And um, he goes to Mesopotamia um, to um, his brother's house, actually. And he doesn't know quite how to go about asking, so he he puts this fleece before the Lord. And he finally arrives at... um, um, in Mesopotamia, and as he's sitting on his camel, he says, Lord, um, how should we go about, how can you pick this girl out? And it said, um, the the women would come out at night because it was cooler, and he says, Lord, let it be the one that comes up to me and says, can I give you a drink of water? And then have her also say, he's got 10 camels with him, and can I water your camels too? And we read here that he hadn't even finished speaking this prayer that he shot up in the air that we read about Rebecca in verse 16. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold a virgin. No man had known her, and she went down and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet him, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. And she says, drink, my Lord. And when she had finished, she says, we'll take care of the camels too. So this is exactly the fleece that um, Eliezer put before the Lord. And um, he said, by the way, you wouldn't have any room at your house for the night, would you? And um, before she said yes, what he did is he took um, a ring a gold ring, and stuck it in his nose, her nose. <laughs> now you know why people do that, I suppose, so these days. And then he, he gave her two shackles of solid gold and put them on her hands. So she's running home with this ring in her nose of solid gold and his two golden bracelets. And um, we read here, yeah, we got, we got enough to take care of you. And verse 25 says, we even have... Um, straw and food enough for you to lodge and your camels. And then in verses 26, 27, he just, he gets down and he starts worshiping the Lord for 
answering his prayer. And um, the young woman, Rebecca, had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out to the man by the well, and um, he saw, the, brace, he saw the, the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist. And when he heard the words of his sister, Rebecca, saying, this man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels by the well. And Laban is impressed with him. He likes him for one reason. This guy's loaded. He's got gold, 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 silver, silver, silver. <laughs> and Laban is a shyster. Let's just put it that way. And um, he said, come on in, let's eat supper. But what um, Eliezer said, I can't sit down and have a meal with you until I tell you the reason why I came here. He said, my master's name is Abraham. And he will not, I came here to find a bride because he will not take a bride for his son from the Canaanites but only from his own family. And as he's telling this story before they actually meet, he tells of the, I like to call it a divine appointment. He tells them, this is what I prayed. She's gotta give me a drink of water, and then she's gonna say, can I water your camels too? And that's exactly what happened. So he's telling this story to Laban and um, uh, Nahor, um, and they're listening to this and they're hearing this whole story and then he says, that's pretty much it. That's why I'm here and um, can you give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down when it comes to Rebecca? And we read in verse 50, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, well, the thing comes from the Lord. We can't speak to you either good or bad. Here's Rebecca before her. Before you, take her and go. And let her be your servant's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. And then he goes in and begins to worship again. And then he brings out all the gifts. Verse 30, 53. Then the servant brought out jewelry, silver, gold, and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave uh, precious things to her brother. That be Laban, he was happy about that and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night, and then arose in the morning and he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, well, let let the young woman stay a few days, you know, at least 10. But he said to them, don't hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master So they said, we will call the young girl and ask her personally. Now this is important. Even though she's been betrothed, she still has to respond with her own free will. And this is very, very important because the work of the Holy Spirit is to go out into all the world and everybody hears the gospel. We were in the back room there and um, Clem was telling me a story about a guy who heard the gospel um, and we don't know whether he accepted he, he went back twice and the next day he died and um, all we could say was right Clem it's the Lord <laughs> 
And, um, but it's one thing to hear the gospel. It's another thing to receive the gospel. And a, a part of this picture that we're um, showing you this morning is it's important that you understand that you have free will. You can hear the gospel and you can say yes and you can say no. Remember Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 people said yes, but there were more than 3,000 people that were there. And that day, 3,000 people were baptized. So this verse here is very, very important. They call Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands. Now that, that's, you can take that one or two ways. <laughs> and our descendants, of course. And may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Uh, then Rebecca and her maids arose and they rode on the camel and followed the man. So the servant took Rebecca and departed. Okay, here's where the picture starts to come together. She said, yes, she's been betrothed. She's on a camel riding back. And this is a period of time that we call the betrothal, where she says yes, but she's not married yet. Is everybody tracking with me? So she's on her way back, and she's riding a, a camel, and the, the picture here, of course, is Abraham is God the father. Eliezer is a picture of the Holy Spirit sent to get the bride. Isaac would be Jesus. And Rebecca, of course, would be the church, having free will. Now, the application is that you and I are betrothed to Jesus, but we're not married yet. Now we're riding through life, we sang the song, watching and waiting and wondering. But if I'm in Rebecca's place right now, you know what I'm thinking? As I'm getting ready to meet the man that I'm going to be married to the rest of my life, what would you be thinking? I, I tried to put myself uh, riding on the camel. And the only thing that I could come up with was, I hope he's cute. <laughs> in other words, she wondered, what he's, what's this guy going to look like? I'm going to be married to him for the rest of my life. I hope he's halfway good looking. And that's what I would be thinking. Now, there's this wonderful scripture, if you're taking notes, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, that tells us, now we see through a mirror dimly, but then, what? Face to face. We wonder, what does our Lord look like? Isaiah gives us a description of what he looked like when he, was, when he walked the earth. But we're also told, and we'll be looking at it this morning, the transfiguration where he was glorified. Um, and while he walked here, he says he was not a man um, that you would desire to look at. In other words, he wasn't a good-looking guy. Um, but someday um, we'll see our Lord face to face. That's why a lot of the songs that Eric picked out this morning had to do with seeing Jesus and praying that we would come and be with him. So the rest of the story, what happens here is also significant because in the next verse, we, we see that Isaac came from the way of Beer 
Leroy, for he dwelt in the south. Now here's the picture. He's not at home. He actually goes out to meet the bride. What happens at the rapture of the church? It says we go to meet him in the air. The picture fits. So what is he doing? Oh, he's just out in the field meditating. What do you think he's thinking? Ooh, I wonder what she looks like. (laughs) What did we find out? She's not only beautiful, she's what? Oh, she's very beautiful. And she sees Isaac, and so she says to one of the guys, as he's meditating in the field, um, who's that out in the field? And she said, "It's, it's Isaac. And she dismounted, put a veil over her, and um, 66, and the servant told Isaac all the things that had done, had been done. And then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her, so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, now they go to the father's house. What's the next step being the bride of Christ? Well, the bride will be taken to the father's house. Again, if you're taking notes, we're in John chapter 14. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. In 2 Corinthians 12, 2, our our verse that we're looking at this morning, we read that, um, for I am zealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused or betrothed you to one husband. Again, remember the context here is Paul's trying to come at these um, people that are giving him a hard time back in Corinth presenting the gospel in the form of a love story rather than not just just being saved. Um, Another verse, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. Well, how do you get ready? Well, you by your own free will exercise and say yes when a proposal is made. But don't look at it just as being saved from your sins. It's much more than that. It's an agreement, a betrothal, that is set up that God loves you. Jesus loves you. And we're unique. And one of my main points this morning is to show the distinction between two groups of people. Because not everybody that's going to be um, in the millennium is going to be part of the bride of Christ. There will be two different groups, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself there. Now, the time of the marriage. When does the wedding transpire? In view of what we've already been, has been said, it would seem that the wedding service, uh, or the presentation stage, will be privately conducted in heaven, perhaps shortly after the Bema seat judgment of Christ. And that's where we were judged, but not according to our sins, because Jesus took care of all that at Calvary, but according to the motive in our heart, why we do what we do, why you serve the Lord. Is it a good motive? Then you'll receive a reward. 
But if you did it in such a way to draw attention to yourself or some other motive, it says you won't get a reward, but you will be saved. So it's not an issue of salvation, the judgment seat of Christ. It's an uh, issue of rewards. The wedding supper or the celebration stage will be publicly conducted on earth shortly after the second coming of Christ. Um, It is no accident that the Bible describes the millennium as occurring right after the celebration supper has begun. And this supper is described in Revelation 19. We'll be going there later. Let me just say this for now. Uh, The wedding and the wedding feast are two different events. After the private marriage service was complete, completed, the public um, marriage supper would begin. To this many guests would be invited. It was during such a celebration that our Lord performed, performed his first miracle, that of changing the water into wine. Um, the Gospel of John, there are seven miracles, There are seven I am statements. This is the first of the seven miracles where Jesus turned the water into wine. Again, in Matthew 22, verse two, it says, a certain man made a great supper and he bid many and then he sent his servants at supper time to say to them that they were bid to come for all things are now ready. That's Luke 14. And then the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. Turn with me, if you would please, to John chapter three. John chapter three. And I'm gonna start to make a distinction between the bride of Christ and somebody who's going to be invited to the wedding feast, whose name is John the Baptist. And let's pick it up in John 3, verse 29. This is Jesus talking about John the Baptist. Um, It says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. And this is um, John actually speaking. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears his voice rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is filled. What did Jesus have to say about John the Baptist? Only that he was the greatest man who ever lived. That's quite a statement. The greatest man who ever lived was John the Baptist. And yet he did no miracles. And even though he was the greatest, he still did no miracles. I'm going to have you flip with me a little bit, and we'll, we'll ducktail these uh, scriptures together. Go to, with me to Luke chapter 1, and we're looking at verse 11. This would be the birth of John. Big debate here. When does, when does life begin? And... Um, I can't resist from saying this because it gives me great joy in saying it. Uh, Nancy Pelosi's been excommunicated from the Catholic Church. (laughs) She can't take communion and she's bragging what a good Catholic girl she is 
and she's getting more and more radical about the Roe v. Wade decision that um, the Archbishop of San Francisco, of all places, said, no more. No more communion for you. You know what that means? If you believe in Catholic theology, you're not going to make it. That's part of the Catholic, Catholic doctrine. You're still in your sin. Without, if you can't take communion, he says, unless you do this, Nancy, you repent openly and publicly. Ooh, it would have been loved to have been a fly in the wall to see the reaction on her face with that one. You're getting sidetracked, Dwight. Yes, I am. <laughs> All right, verse 11 of chapter 1. And my point here is when does life begin? I would, before I read this, I would say not at conception, before conception. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of the incense and when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son you're gonna call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he shall neither drink wine nor strong drink. Uh, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And then it goes on to say, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God he will also go before him in the spirit and power, notice, of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom and just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This verse comes from the last two verses in the Old Testament, and it is a double prophecy, and I want you to see it. So go to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapter four. And here we're told in in Luke that this scripture refers to John the Baptist. But it also, read here in verse five of chapter four, he says, behold, I'm gonna send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He's one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. And notice what it says, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Who will? Elijah. But we just read in the New Testament, no. He's talking about John the Baptist. And some of you are thinking, make up your mind, Dwight, which is it? And the answer is, both. And the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. This is clearly a double prophecy, and um, to even make it more clear, I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 17, because we have Elijah showing up again, and Jesus' explanation of seeing Elijah is very, very interesting, but we have to read it. Chapter 17, 1 through 9, 1 through 13. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and his brother and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to talk with him. 
And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, we could make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And when his disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, don't be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now they're coming down the mountain. And as they came down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And then his disciples began to ask questions, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Where did they get that from? Well, Malachi. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly is coming. Now that's future tense. He is coming and he will restore all things. These are the two lampstands of Revelation chapter 11. But notice that it says truly he is coming. Well, he was an Old Testament prophet. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, but they did know him, but to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Now notice this. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist and the Spirit was placed upon, the Spirit of Elijah was placed on John the Baptist. And when we're asking all these questions about Elijah, he said, well, he is coming, but he's already come. And we're told here that uh, he's making them equal, Elijah and John the Baptist. Two different people indeed, but the same power of the Holy Spirit rested upon them. All right, let's turn to Revelation chapter 19, and let's look at now the marriage supper. The reason I went there is I want to make a distinction of who is the bride of Christ and there will be those invited to the wedding banquet that are not part of the body of Christ but will be invited to this wedding feast. Revelation 19 uh, verses 7 and 9 tell us, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are true sayings of God. Now, the marriage of the Lamb is come. Uh, Marriage is a marvelous picture of the joining together of Christ and the church. Notice that the Old Testament saints are not included. Only the believers during the church age are concluded. Even John the Baptist designated himself as only, remember, a friend of the bridegroom. He said, he that has the bride is the bridegroom. John 3.29, we were just there. Uh, The bride occupies a unique relationship with Christ. You see, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Remember what he said in his high priestly prayer, I and them 
and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one and in the world. After the marriage of the Lamb in heaven, the next great event is the return of Christ to the earth. The king is coming. Ooh, let that one sink in. The king is coming. But he will not come until after the church has been raptured and the earth has gone through the great tribulation. Now when he comes to the earth, his bride will be with him, just like Rebecca went to meet Isaac in the field, so the church will go to meet the Lord in the air. And their marriage supper will be upon the earth as we have seen. What a glorious day lies ahead for us. Um, if we could only get our eyes off all the junk and muck that's going on in our world today, isn't it nice being able to come to church and sing worship songs and have fellowship and get away from it all for a little while? Only to have to go back home and <laughs> hear something else that's hitting the fan. So the marriage supper will take place on earth. Both Israelites and Gentiles who enter the millennium are the invited guests. Now think this through with me. After we're raptured, what happens? Moses and Elijah show up. 144,000 witnesses. Well, what do they do? They witness. <laughs> and a lot of people get saved. But the marriage has already taken place. So they're living through. In Matthew 25, we have the division between the sheep and the goats. And this is at after the Lord comes back, and those that were faithful and got saved during the seven-year tribulation, were, they'll be invited to the wedding feast, but they, the wedding itself had already taken place. Is everybody tracking with me? So when, when we read here, those who are invited to the wedding feast, um, they will have their role in place uh, during... Um, uh, the millennial reign. Turn with me back to our text, uh, and we just got through the first verse. We're going to switch gears big time because three and four are a different subject. Verse three says, Lest I fear somehow as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may uh, not be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. Deception. The Bible tells us that. Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. Okay, I'm gonna address a current deception that's out there today, and I'm gonna have him put it on the screen. You've seen this on TV, and what it is, how many of you have seen this picture on TV? What is it? It's a UFO, and that's, and that's what we're being told that it is. Let me tell you in no uncertain terms, it is not a UFO. It is either man-made, we have the technology to do something like that, but I would take it a step farther and say it's demonic. It's demonic and it's a deception. To do what? Oh, we've traveled here trillions of light years and been keeping an eye on you guys. Matter of fact, we were, we were the ones that planted you here in the first place. And... Um, we see that you're about to destroy each other, so we have to intervene, and that's why we're here. And that's some of the propaganda that's being put out there. No, Paul said, look out. 
Don't be deceived. That is not a UFO. It is either man-made or it is a demon because the devil can change himself into an angel of light and I imagine he can change himself into probably anything he wants to. And what is it? It's a lie. It's deception at the highest because it's another gospel. So, uh, you can reassure your friends that the next time they talk about ETs and, and, um, and flying saucers, go, no, that's not what it is at all. So that's, I wanted to purposely get a little sidetracked here on that. The next one um, is in verse four, talks about preaching another Jesus or having another spirit or presenting something other than the real true gospel of Jesus Christ. When I go to Arizona, they have all these crazy Christian programming. I mean, if you have a satellite, maybe you see some, some of these programs are out there, but they are so totally off the wall that anybody that knows their Bible just gets, but I, I watched them because I want to be informed. And um, I watched Joel Olstein. He has the largest church in the country outside of Houston. And I listened to him give his happy, clappy, um, God wants you happy and healthy and wealthy. And um, you will never hear Joel Olstein give a Bible study on hell. Why? Because it makes people feel uncomfortable. He is the epitome of what I call the seeker-sensitive church where you don't want to tell people something that's going to make you feel uncomfortable, like hell, for instance, but only things that will build you up, make you feel good, so that when you go home, you're just going to have a wonderful life. And matter of fact, they even have a game called Your Best Life Now. If I'm having my best life now, I am really disappointed. (laughs) Paul's going to go on next week and talk about all the things he had to go through, all the trials, all the sufferings, all the shipwrecks, nights without sleep, fasting, all the the list goes on and on and on. Trials and persecution. When he gets ready to to go to Jerusalem, a prophet comes up to him and says, you go up there, you're gonna get in big trouble. And what was his attitude? Why do you break my heart? You think that's gonna stop me? I'd, I'd rather die and be with the Lord and be with him, which is far better. So going up there and getting killed, oh death, where's your sting? Oh grave, where's your victory? Bring it on. Why? Because you never die, that's why. Only this dies. Spirit doesn't die. Souls don't die. They are eternal. And Paul says, I'm only here because the Lord wants to be here to teach his word and to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good place for an amen. So that's why we're here. And then the other one that I watched was Joyce Meyer, the queen of the prosperity teachers. And as I listened to her, um, I'm gonna put a picture of her house up because I actually got an email the last time I ragged on Joyce Meyer and the influence that she has on people. Yeah, that's their uh, $20 million home. Um, Her net worth is eight, $24 Point twenty-four million dollars. Um, 
Her yearly salary is 1.37 million. Her monthly salary is $114,444. This is her $20 million home, uh, 10,000 square feet. Ooh, that reminds me a lot how Jesus lived. (laughs) What did Jesus say about his living conditions? He said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. He traveled around, and whoever would put him up, like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that's where he stayed. When it came to money, somebody came up to him one time and said, should we pay him taxes or not? And he said, well, show me a coin. And it makes me wonder, the Lord didn't even have a coin. And he, he said, well, here's, here's a coin. Well, whose picture's on it? Caesar. Well, then render to Caesar what's Caesar's. But render to God what is God's. What's your point, Dwight? He didn't have a house. He didn't have money. That's our example. And um, we're to emulate that. He says, if you have the mind of Christ. So, um, I just thought I'd go online and show you a picture of um, another spirit. Uh, Paul is telling the Corinthians And this had to be applicable to them, and I'll tell you why. Remember, it was the wealthiest city at the time with its two ports. And again, they weren't used to having somebody tell them what to do and how to do it, especially if he didn't have good speaking abilities, but I still think Paul did, or he didn't have a good outward appearance. So um, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, we have just a couple more verses. 1 Corinthians 15. So, as we wind this up this morning, while we are in the betrothal stage of our walk with the Lord, and we are, we've been espoused or betrothed to Jesus. And we're waiting for our Lord then Jesus said we need to be about our father's business. Remember Matthew 28? What are we to do until Jesus comes again? Sit and tell, have someone like Joel Olson telling you you can have your best life now? Or are you gonna take a little flack for not compromising and speaking the truth about the gospel and what it's gonna cost you? You gotta pick up your cross daily. And what the problem with that is? It's daily, (laughs) and die to yourself, and that's not popular. But we are to be about our Father's business with the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? That's why I have you at 1 Corinthians 15, just four verses. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, and now you stand, and now you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is a simple gospel. That's why we have the Romans road to hand out to people and um, have our opportunities to um, uh, the Lord puts the strangest stories at the strangest times in my mind. Okay, so 
I'm flying into, uh, hopefully I'll find my way back home, but uh, um, know how many taxis there are in Phoenix, Mesa area? Quite a few, right? I get the same guy picking me up all the time. And um, we have a cat that has nine lives and used all nine of them up and is blind and, and um, literally can't see anything. Falling him down all the time. And it's Judy's little baby. And she won't let anybody take care of it. So I went down there. I, I sold uh, my trailer that I inherited from my mom and dad. But um, the last time I was down there, about a month ago, this guy, same guy there again, his name is Dave. And um, so I'm walking out and back of my head and I said, but there's no way it's going to happen again. Who do you suppose was the first cab in line? Yeah, it was Dave. I get in the cab and I say, hi, Dave. You know what he says? How's Kitty? <laughs> and I said, did you watch God of Wonders yet? And he goes, no. And I said, that's the reason I'm picking, you're picking me up again. <laughs> he took the wrong turn. And he's taking me to, he knows exactly where to drop me off when he, when he goes in. But he took the wrong turn, so we were talking for another half an hour. And he was asking question after question after question. And there's no way that you can convince me that it was a happenstance. It was a hand of the Lord. He knew it. I knew it. And I got it on video if anybody wants to see it. <laughs> I said, I got I to gotta take this and uh, I want you to say hi to Judy for me. So I got my camera up. Hi, Judy. I was kidding. Uh, <laughs> true story. That, that just happened. And the reason I'm telling you that story is I'd have no reason to think. <laughs> but it's a great story anyway, don't you think? Yeah, it's a great story. So here we are, just sinners, saved by grace, but we're betrothed to Christ. He loves you, and there is a marriage that's going to be taking place soon. And like Rebecca, I wonder what he looks like. We're going to see him. It says face to face. Turn with me to our last verse in Revelation chapter 22, my favorite verse in the Bible. It says in 22 verse 4, and they shall see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. I asked Eric if he would sing that song this morning, I want to see you. And I hope that as we let go of things, hopefully more and more, and our priorities become more, I want to see you, Lord, than to get involved with um, things down here. Let me say something about money. There's nothing wrong with money. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Money's amoral. I mean, we used it for good this morning by taking a collection for Gideons, right? Get the word of God out there. That takes money. And so we pass the plate for stuff like that. And um, yet through it all, and I'll close with this thought, Paul's trying to get through to these hard-headed Corinthians that don't like the way he looks and don't like the way he speaks. So it comes to the back door and starts talking about love. And it's really about love. And having this desire in this betrothal stage, that someday you're going to see the one who died for you. You're going to see him face to face. And I want to see that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer.
Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we talk about this betrothal stage that we find ourselves in, yes, we are looking through a mirror dimly right now, but as your word promises us, someday, face to face. And Lord, as Rebecca was riding on her way to meet her husband, um, I'm sure she wondered, what does he look like? I'm sure Isaac was wondering, what does she look like? So Lord, your word tells us in Colossians 3 verse 1 that if we're born again, then we're to seek those things which are above where you are. Help us be obedient to that, Lord, and help us if our priorities are out of whack or we're not walking right with you, help us understand the hour's very late and um, we need to make things right with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.